Good morning. My, uh, my honor this morning is to introduce to you our chapel speaker, the Reverend Bob Davis, has been the senior pastor at Drapers Valley PCA the past five years. Previous to that, he served as a pastor in Massachusetts for 26 years. He did his BA at Grove City College, but has since seen the light that this is the location for premier undergraduate Christian education in the world. He did his MDiv at Princeton Theological Seminary and his DMAN at Gordon-Conwell. He's been married to his wife, Kim, for almost 32 years. But you may know him best as the father of Katie, class of 13, and Bethany, class of 15. I know Bob because for the past four years he has served as a trustee. He's been on the Student Development Committee and for the last two years the chair of that committee. And I count him as a friend through conversations here on campus, through phone calls and emails, um, figuring out the agenda for the meetings. Um, I've grown to know his, his sense of humor, his insightful mind, his pastoral heart, and his passion for the gospel, and his love for this place and for the students. And so it's, I'm really glad you guys get to see a slice of that now. So join me in welcoming Bob to the stage. Sixteen sixty one, James Guthrie, the pastor of Stirling, Scotland, was put to death by hanging. Now you say, what was his crime? He was a Presbyterian preacher. You say, I thought all Presbyterians and were Scots and all Scots were Presbyterians. Well, not in sixteen sixty one. And if you don't know what was going on, ask somebody who does. But as he was climbing the ladder to the scaffold, he was asked, are you afraid to die? And here was his answer. He said he had often felt greater fear in ascending the pulpit to preach than he did now in mounting the gallows to die. And that's what keeps me awake usually on Saturday nights. Because you see, the preaching of the Word of God is a most fearsome responsibility for two reasons. Number one, you might lead someone astray. They might think wrongly about what you're saying. And number two, you might dishonor your Lord. And that is why it is incumbent upon us to begin with prayer and to ask God to open His Word through the preaching of His Word that we might be more faithful followers of Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege that it is to be here today. We thank you that we have set aside this time in your providence to be here under the Word of God. Father, indeed, may we be under the Word, and may we be so that we might honor Christ. Come by your Spirit upon us all, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the sermon you're about to get today uh, is probably the longest sermon you have ever heard in gestation. I was asked to speak in chapel a year and a half ago. Last March, I was supposed to preach at this very time. But something about a new president preempted that. Anyway, I'm glad to be here today. And when I asked uh, Chaplain Messner what I should preach on, here was his recommendation. He says, just preach on what you think is important to the average Covenant College community member. So I've been thinking about that for a year and a half, and 
Lots of ideas have come to mind. I've even talked to some of you and said, what's important to you? And all kinds of things have come back to me. If you're a senior, it's seven weeks, one day, four hours till you graduate. If you're not a senior, you're wishing you were. You're thinking about classes and relationships and all kinds of things are flooding into your mind, and they're all important to you. But what I'm going to preach on today is what's most important, not to you and not to me, but to the Apostle Paul. Because Paul wrote the Corinthians and he said this, he said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And the text we're going to use to look at that is not something you'd think. We're going to go back to the Old Testament to the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 53. So if we could have that slide up there now. Actually, I'm not going to read all verses. So we're going to start at verse 3 and keep up if you can. And we're going to jump around a bit. This is a passage about the Messiah. It is not specifically uh, something that you might think about if you were in Isaiah's day, some 700 years before Christ. But Isaiah was led by the Spirit of God to write these words. So beginning at verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And now jumping to verse 10, which is really the focus of my message. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Obviously, Isaiah 53 speaks about the bloody horror of the cross. And you know from your reading of the Gospels that it was a most desperate time for all those who were being crucified in that manner. And we know all about how uh, Jesus Christ, as the man of sorrows, that he is stricken, smitten, and afflicted, that he was the lamb led to the slaughter. But notice in verse 10, it says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was God's purpose and plan to do that. And he makes an offering for sin. Now, that word, makes an offering, is using a language right out of the book of Leviticus, uh, an offering of atonement a trespass offering. And it says his soul, or some translations, his life will be offered. 
and he bears the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. We know that the suffering servant of Isaiah was sent to die for sinners, and we see that in Jesus Christ very clearly. But there's another point here that you may not readily see, and that's our focus this morning. Notice in verse 10 that it says that he suffered in his soul. And verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul. And verse 12, that he poured out his soul unto death. It wasn't just that Christ suffered in his body on the tree. He did, clearly. But it was more than that. Have you ever considered the fact that he suffered in his soul? You say, Pastor Bob, my mind is filled with too many things today. That's just too hard. Well, if a Grove City grad can understand it, so can you. <laughs> Let's think about this for a few minutes then this morning. Christ, on the cross, suffered not only in his body, which is what we usually think about and see, but Christ also suffered in his soul. Now, what does that mean? Well, two things. Number one, Christ has a soul. He had a true human nature. We sang that already today. And if you haven't already had Christian Doctrine 1, you'll learn it there. And if you do, you already have an answer to one of the questions on the test. Christ had a true body and a reasonable soul, says the Shorter Catechism. He, the eternal Son of God, became man, and in his human nature was in all points like we which means he had a soul. And the scriptures speak of this over and over again, and Christ himself tells us he had a soul. And not only that, he tells us that he suffered in his human nature, in his soul. He tells us on the way into Jerusalem, on what we call Palm Sunday. We read in John 12, Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled. His soul. More poignantly, he tells us in the Garden of Gethsemane, he asks his disciples to be with him, and he says, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Stay here and watch with me. And you know, of course, that they didn't. They didn't. And so when Isaiah speaks about the suffering servant suffering in his soul, he is just affirming what the whole of the Scriptures teach, that Jesus Christ, in his human nature, had a, what we'd call a human soul. That's the first point, very easy. Now the second, a little harder. It was necessary for Christ to suffer in his human soul. Now I use that word necessary with great caution. It was not an absolute necessity that Jesus Christ come into the world and die for sinners and suffer in his soul. You and I do not absolutely have to be saved. It's only by God's grace that we are. But because God determined in the predeterminate counsel of the Godhead before the beginning of time that he would save sinners like you and I, because he had decreed to save sinners, it was necessary that the Son come and suffer in his soul. Now, why is that? Well, because it's in our soul that we die. It is in the, our human nature that we sin. And the punishment for sin is death. And so body and soul, we suffer because of our sins. You may think that, well, a lot of the sins are just of the body. No, the soul sins. What is the soul? Theologians like to think of the soul in this way, that it is our mind, our intellectual capacity, 
It is our emotions, or as Jonathan Edwards would say, our affections, our heart. It is our will, the volitional capacity that, that enables us to do things. That's our soul. And when we sin, we sin body and soul. Your body cannot do something unless your mind, your heart, and the will are encouraging and moving it in that direction. When I was a little boy, my grandmother taught me this little poem. Sometimes my hands are naughty, and so my mother says that she will have to scold them and send them off to bed. So little hands, be careful of everything you do, because if you have to go to bed, I have to go to bed too. I don't know why she made me memorize that. <laughs> but it's so profoundly biblically true. You can't send your hands to bed without your soul. And you are body and soul, and Jesus Christ in his human nature was body and soul, and we sin in our soul, so if the suffering servant is going to die for sinners, he must suffer in his soul a consequent necessity of God's decree to save sinners. So now the question is, what is the nature and the magnitude of that suffering? What does it mean to say Jesus Christ suffered in his soul? And how does that affect the way I live? Well, first, the nature of soul suffering. We get a hint of that by Jesus sweating drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, it's physically true, I've read, that you can so exert your body that you will cause the little capillaries under your skin to break and you will sweat drops of blood. Imagine, if you will, someone exerting themselves to that level. Imagine, if you will, we've probably all seen it, Jean Valjean under the wagon lifting it off of the man who is being pressed to death in Les Mis, straining every muscle of his body. He might have sweated blood. But here's the interesting thing. Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane is not undergoing any physical stress. It's all emotional. It's of the soul, the mind, the heart, urging the will to go to the cross. The agony in the Garden is in here, in the depths of his soul. And he was sweating drops of blood. Now, we've all known some suffering of the soul. There's not a person in this room that hasn't suffered in their soul. You've been hurt emotionally. Someone has said something to you. It's been painful. And you hide it bodily. You smile. But inside, you're suffering. Someone has said something, done something, been something to you, and you are suffering in your soul. Or maybe it's loneliness or grief. Whatever it is, we all know about soul suffering, but I'm here to say that, that what we know of soul suffering is so tiny compared to what Christ suffered in his soul on the cross. And that is because in his suffering on the cross, in his soul, something wonderful was taken away and something absolutely hideous and horrible was laid upon him. What was wonderful that was taken away? Now here, you who teach in the Bible department, be nice to me. 
we have to be very, very careful how we speak about what was taken away from Christ on the cross. He cries out and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what does he mean by that? What has been lost on the cross? What, in what sense is he forsaken? It's not the love of the Father to the Son. The love of the Father to the Son is eternal and immutable. It's not the relationship that the Son has to the Father. He actually says, my God. They're in relationship still. But something is removed, or maybe better, hidden. Theologians much, much smarter than I say it this way. They say, he lost the heavenly light and comfort of his Father. Or there was a suspension of joy and peace, a withdrawing of sweet communion. It's illustrated by the darkness that fell upon the earth at the time of the crucifixion. You'll remember, everything was dark for three hours. It was probably an eclipse of the sun. And you know that an eclipse is when the moon passes between the earth and the sun so that it blocks its light. The sun is still there. Well, in like manner, the Father was still there for the Son. But in some way, that wonderful relationship that they had enjoyed was now changed for a time. So much so that the Son of God cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Perhaps we get a hint of what that would be like when we read in 2 Thessalonians about those who will spend eternity in hell. It is said of those people, they shall be punished with everlasting destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. I don't want to experience that. And if you have a relationship through Jesus Christ with God the Father, and you know something about that sweet communion you feel at times with the Lord and the times when that is broken by your sin or your grieving the Spirit, then you know something of that aloneness that Christ suffered on the cross. But the magnitude of that will never be known by us. So that was removed from Him. But what was it that was placed upon Him well, the text says he was afflicted, not just in his body, but in the totality of his human nature, he suffered in his soul. And what kind of afflictions were laid upon Christ on the cross? The terror, the misery, the suffering, the pain, the wrath for God for sin. It wasn't that Christ became a sinner but that the wrath for sinners was laid upon him. No mere creature could understand what that would be like, and no mere creature could ever do it for others. But remember, Christ is suffering on the cross in his human nature for all of the people that the Father has given him to die for. And as it were, in a moment, he suffers the wrath of God for all those sins of all of us and everyone else for whom he died. 
Now think of bearing that kind of thing. Or, or make it physical. Let's, let's say you place your hand on a table and, and you take a five-pound brick and you put it on your hand. And you say, I feel the weight, but it is not crushing my hand. It doesn't really hurt. It's distributed nicely. What if someone took that five-pound weight and machined it into a beautiful stainless steel, incredibly sharp point? And then put a five-pound point on your hand. You would be pierced deeply. Jesus Christ, in his three hours on the cross, suffered in his soul the entirety of the wrath of God the Father for all the sins of all of his people, which is why the Apostles' Creed says he descended into hell, and that was it. We cannot understand that, but we bow before it. That's what it means for Christ to suffer in his soul on the cross for our sins. He became a curse for us. Now, what does that do to the way we live? Four things. Number one, if you have ever, ever, ever doubted the love of God for sinners, look to the cross where his love poured out Imagine the eternal counsel of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Will we save sinners is the question of the day. And God the Father says, I will. I love the world. And the Son says, I will. Knowing full well what it would mean. Have you ever doubted that God loves you? For a moment? Have you wondered because of your sin, its magnitude or its length? Does God love me? Look to the cross. If need be, wear one around your neck that you can hold up to yourself and say, I don't feel loved, but God loves me. And Christ died for sinners, just like me. Don't ever doubt the love of God. And secondly, it teaches us not only that God loves sinners, but that God is just. You have to hold both of those ideas together. God loves and God is just. And it is necessary that his justice be met in every way. It is a holy justice. In Isaiah 53, it talks about, my no, by my knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will account many righteous. The whole process of justification, righteousness. But behind all that is the absolute justice of God. He must be judged, and therefore sinners must be punished. And so Christ, as the perfect substitute, comes and receives the wrath of the Father. And so what does that mean? It means you can't ever hope that God will somehow overlook your sin. You can't ever hope that God will somehow sweep your sin under the cosmic carpet of the universe and ignore it. God lays your sin on his son. And in perfect justice, the son suffers for that sin. That's justice. 
So either, in short, you will suffer for your sins or Christ already has. And if Christ already has injustice, then you cannot. Don't think for a moment that you are being punished for your sins by God. If you are in Christ, He has already done that. Now, God the Father may, like a good father, chastise you in order to get you to repent and come back. But He will never, ever, ever punish His children for their sins. Thirdly, we have to see that Christ in His suffering in His soul satisfies the justice of God. Isaiah says that He shall in the anguish of His soul see and be satisfied. He sees His countless offspring. He sees all those whom he is dying for, and he rejoices in that and is satisfied. Who is satisfied? The Father is satisfied with the sacrifice of the Son, and the Son is sacrificed that his extreme agony of soul and body is sufficient to appease the Father and to win the souls of these people that he is dying for. It is a once and for all complete satisfaction, but I fear that far too many Christians don't believe in a satisfied Savior. And they think by something I do, I have to bring the satisfaction level up to the 100% mark. That Christ has done some things and I have to do other things so that God really loves me and is satisfied. Jesus Christ has suffered fully, satisfactorily for all the sins of all of His people. And nothing you or I can do can change that, can add to it or subtract from it. How do we know that? Jesus tells us on the cross. He says, it is finished. Now, by that phrase, he means a lot, but he at least means this, that his suffering in his soul for sinners is accomplished. It is done. It is complete. It is finished. And he gives up his body unto death because the soul suffering is finished. And he breathes his last and he dies. Do you believe that? Do you believe that as a sinner who has trusted Christ and repented of your sin, that he has perfectly satisfied the Father in his justice? That does not mean you go out and sin boldly because it's covered. It means you fall on your face before an all-sufficient Savior and you grieve the fact that you're a sinner still. We tend to be too burdened by our continual sin. We can't continue to think that somehow God doesn't love me anymore because I continue to sin. But do you not see that Jesus Christ loves you when you were a sinner? and loves you still, and has paid the all-sufficient price for every one of your sins. And He suffered in His soul so that the sins of your mind, and the sins of your heart, and the sins of your will, directing your body to sin, are all sufficiently atoned for in Christ. 
And with that, of course, if he can justify sinners and satisfy the Father, he can also sanctify sinners. And you can be absolutely certain that that sin which you have now, that you seemingly cannot get rid of, he is at work in you putting it to death so that you are becoming more and more like Jesus. And he will change you because he's the all-sufficient Savior. Lastly, very quickly, how do we live? We live holy lives. Because Jesus Christ hated my sin, so I should hate my sin. And we cry out to him daily, O Lord, help me put sin to death and bring forth the fruits of righteousness in me. And I don't care if someone laughs at me because of my holy lifestyle. I don't care if someone mocks my righteousness. I want to live like Jesus. We lead holy lives and we lead thankful lives because we recognize the extent as best we can. We recognize the extent to which Christ suffered, body and soul, because I'm a sinner. And lastly, we lead the kind of lives that you heard in chapel on Wednesday, pure lives. That's what Craig Troxell was speaking about, pure lives. Not wholly pure lives, but focused pure lives, which means we are Christ-centered. Because you see, the most important thing, this is hard to hear, seniors, is not your graduation, or not your new relationship, the rest of you, or not the homework you haven't done or have done, or not any other thing that you can possibly set your mind to except this, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And though we live in a very narcissistic culture, it says it's all about me. The Christian says it is not about me, it's about Jesus. And I need to put myself and even my sin behind me, and I need to focus on the cross. And so I live my life for Jesus, and Christ is my identity. And I want to serve him. I want to love him. I am willing to die for him, as you just sang. Because he's my all-sufficient Savior. You know, preachers have to practice what they preach. Non-preachers have to practice what they sing. So say it again, or sing it if you like. Lead me to the cross where your love poured out. Bring me to my knees, Lord, I lay me down. Rid me of myself. I belong to you. Oh, lead me. Lead me to the cross. Because when you go to the cross, you see that your all-sufficient Savior suffered there in his soul and his body that you might be free to serve him. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, how grateful we are for your all-sufficient Son who came and offered up his soul and his body for sinners. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for not trusting Christ, loving Christ, serving Christ, and giving our all to Christ. Change us, we pray, by your all-sufficient spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.